Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Jake Halpern here. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that Deep Cover Season 2 will be dropping weekly on Mondays. But the full season is available right now ad-free for Pushkin Plus subscribers. That's all 10 episodes right away. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover Show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Previously on Deep Cover. Ever since the days of Al Capone, the outfit had been an almost unstoppable force in the city of Chicago. The mob had corrupted many of the city's judges and politicians, and its hitmen killed with impunity. Then, in the spring of 1986, something unexpected happened. A mob lawyer named Bob Cooley walked into the offices of federal prosecutors and offered to switch sides. The prosecutor he spoke with was stunned. You know, why have the gods delivered this gift to me? There's got to be something wrong with this. I had profound questions about his motivation. I think everybody did. In the eyes of federal prosecutors, Bob's story and his offer seemed almost too good to be true. So the feds couldn't help but wonder, what was Bob Cooley really after? Bob didn't just start out as a lawyer for the mob. He had to work his way up. 
he started out real small potatoes in traffic court. And that's where he got his first whiff of how things were really done in Chicago. Bob goes to traffic court to try his very first case. His client had been caught drinking and driving and got a DUI. The trial doesn't take long. The judge just throws the ticket right out. Bob's like, thank you very much. I mean, a win is a win, right? Afterwards, in the hallway, Bob bumps into this guy he knows, a cop named Jimmy. Tall, skinny guy. People called him dog breath behind his back. Anyway, Jimmy, he was the judge's cousin. And Jimmy said to me, the first one was on the house. From here on out, you come and see me before you have any case. And I understood exactly what that meant. What he meant was that going forward, Bob would have to pay if he expected to win. Old dog breath, he was the judge's bag man, the guy who collected the bribes in cash. And in the coming days and weeks, as he learned the ropes, Bob discovered that every desired outcome had a price. DUIs, 150 bucks to fix. Hit someone with a car, 500. And traffic court, that was like the minor leagues. Bob says after a few months, he quickly graduated to the big leagues to another courtroom Bob calls gambling and gun court, where the real action was taking place. And there, like in traffic court, money was flowing straight into the judge's pocket, literally. Bob says he'd just saunter back to the judge's chambers, open the closet door. And I would just put, you know, put the money. I would go and I would put $100 for each case I had in his pocket. Bob says that before long, he had three cases a day in this courtroom. He usually made motions to dismiss the charges against his clients so he could avoid going to trial. This tactic, combined with the payoffs, worked very well. Did you ever lose any of those cases? I've never. How could I lose? You know? <laughs> Wait, did you, did you, hold on. Did you like go through the motions of like making like a good argument? Oh, yeah. Well, certainly. That's why these, the judges love me in particular because. I gave them plenty of reasons, as I would say, to hang your hat on. So, so the bribe is almost just like your insurance. No, it was because I'm a nice guy, Jake. I, a vast majority of those cases, you know, on the legit had to be thrown out because, you know, the, the motions were legitimate. But I did it because, you know, that was my nature. His nature. Bob prided himself as a big tipper, a generous guy. The way he described it, he was almost like the Santa Claus of the court system, just doling out gifts. As he regaled me with stories, it all sounded so grand, until I actually stopped and thought about what he was saying. Wait, but but Bob, are you trying to tell me that you really believe that these weren't bribes, they were just tips? No, but, no you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Okay. I am not saying I didn't pay a lot of bribes. Yes, I paid a lot of bribes on cases. Yes, they were bribes. Maybe not in the eyes of the law. If you look at the definition of a bribe, it's you're paying somebody to do something that they normally wouldn't do. And because the judges were going to rule in his favor anyway, because he'd made such a strong case, well then, it wasn't technically a bribe, was it? It was more like a sweetener or an act of largesse. 
That's how Bob told it, anyway. Over the next few years, Bob Cooley earned himself a reputation as a flashy criminal defense lawyer. No-tie, gold-chain Bob. He drove a convertible and had vanity plates, of course. RJC, his initials. He seemed to play by his own rules. He'd park his car in the mayor's spot in front of City Hall to show off, to prove to his clients that he could get away with it. His lifestyle was an advertisement of sorts to attract a certain type of client. Criminal defendants with deep pockets, often guys with mob ties. This is who Bob wanted to impress. And they did come calling. In 1977, the mob asked him to fix a case, a murder case, involving a hitman. Bob had a hunch that if he said yes, it could change everything for him. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Mobland. Episode 2, The Murder. One day in February of 1977, Bob learned that a guy named Pat Marcy wanted to meet with him. Marcy was one of the city's most powerful men. Bob had never met him before, but he knew who he was. Everybody knew Pat Marcy was the one that controlled the entire political system. Marcy kept a low profile, and even to this day, much of his story is still shrouded in mystery. Legend has it, his career with the mob started back in the days of Al Capone. Even his name has a kind of shape-shifting quality to it. He starts off Pasqualino Marcone on his birth certificate, and it keeps changing again and again on public records until he finally becomes Pat Marcy in 1953. Everybody knew Pat Marcy was a former Capone mobster, a gunman. Eventually, Marcy went into politics, became an official for the First Ward, one of the city's most powerful political districts. First Ward picked every, basically every judge, every prosecutor, every police uh, commander and, and, and whatever. They controlled the entire system. But really, Marcy was like the mob's political czar, its head of government affairs, if you will, a guy who used the mob, its wealth, and its muscle to influence a network of corrupt officials. He had an air about him that was, uh, you know, really scary. He was a nasty, vicious human being. You could tell it. If you met the man, you would know that he's, uh, he's pure evil, but unbelievably powerful in, in every sense. For Bob, what this meant was pretty simple. When Pat Marcy asked for a meeting, you took it. On the day of the meeting, Bob went to a restaurant in downtown Chicago and waited for Pat Marcy to show up. This wasn't just any restaurant, by the way. 
It was a legendary place called Counselor's Row, where Chicago's trial lawyers and old-time politicians went to grab a drink and shoot the shit after work. There was a corner table known as Booth Number 1, or the First Ward Table, where Pat Marcy held court. The table even had its own landline telephone. Anyway, this is where Bob waited. When Marcy finally showed up that day, he didn't actually enter the restaurant. Instead, he waited behind a glass door that led to an adjoining lobby and just stood there, waiting for Bob. The mob's political czar was wearing a three-piece suit and a pair of tinted glasses that obscured his eyes. Bob stood up, exited the restaurant, and joined Marcy in the lobby. And right there, Marcy made his request. He said, look, he said, I've got a case here. Can you handle it? And I knew exactly what he meant. You know, that was our term, you know, for fixing the case. Speaking the language that we spoke, you know, I, I, I basically spoke a different language probably than most lawyers. This, of course, is part of the reason that Pat asked to meet with Bob. Bob knew how to talk about fixing a case without ever really talking about it. This was all part of Bob's professionalism, if you will. But what Marcy wanted help with was no ordinary request. It was a murder case. He asked if Bob knew a judge who could handle it. Standing there in the lobby, Bob was at a crossroads. If he could come through on this, prove his worth to Marcy, it'd be a big deal, no telling what Marcy could do for him. On the other hand, this was uncharted territory for Bob. He'd fixed cases before, placed all kinds of bribes or tips, as he called them, but never in a murder trial. Bob knew he had to proceed carefully. If there was one thing he didn't want to do, it was promise something that he couldn't deliver. He needed more intel, so he asked Marcy to get a hold of the police reports. Because Bob knew at some point all of this would go before a judge, and he had to make sure there was justification for a not guilty verdict. Enough evidence for the judge to hang his hat on, as Bob liked to say. You know, so it wouldn't look like the judge had been bribed. As if all of this weren't enough pressure, afterwards, one of Pat Marcy's minions pulled Bob aside and warned him. He said, you know, if you say you're going to take it, I don't want a, uh, you know, a problem afterwards. And I said, look, I said, if I tell you I'll take it, I'll take it. The next day, Pat Marcy gave the police reports to Bob and told him, get back to me. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Before Bob would agree to fix this murder case, he wanted more details. He wanted to understand what exactly had happened, who'd gotten killed, were there any witnesses, what was the motive. So let's start with who got killed. The victim was William Logan. People called him Billy. He was just 35 years old. He was like a big teddy bear. He was tall. Yeah, I remember he had big hands. Always smiling. Just a happy guy. That's Johanna Santanello, Billy's niece. I visited her not long ago at her home in the suburbs of Chicago. To this day within the family, Johanna is kind of like the keeper of Uncle Billy's memory. She has all kinds of memorabilia related to him. Photos, newspaper clippings, and journal entries. Also, volumes of court papers related to his murder. I mean, boxes and boxes of all this stuff. When I visited Johanna, she had it all laid out on the dining room table for me, like the archives of some enormous unwritten biography. So it's been a little overwhelming, too, (laughs) because there's just so much. And it's like I wanted to get organized and for you and have everything. And then I started digging into it, and I'm like, Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. It's like I had chairs filled with stuff. Yeah, I feel like we're in the scene in the movie where they're like trying to, they're getting ready to go to trial. They're They're going over the books. Yeah, and it's just like, oh my God, there's so much stuff on this table. Yeah, it's crazy. But you're meant to be here. The story's meant to be told. He was a big strapping guy, played football not someone you'd want to mess with. This is when Uncle Billy was in the Army and they won the championship. Those are all his Army buddies. Before serving in the military, Billy joined the Teamsters at 17 years old. That's the famous truck driver's union that Jimmy Hoffa once ran. Uncle Billy also drove a cab on the side. At the time of his death, Billy was divorced and living with his two sisters. One of them was recently widowed and had four kids. 
Those kids, by the way, were Johanna and her three brothers. Uncle Billy was helping raise them. He became like a kindly father to them. Not everyone saw Uncle Billy this way. According to his ex-wife, Billy had a darker side. She said he was physically abusive. But Johanna says she never saw this side of him. As she recalls it, Uncle Billy was a gentle giant. As we continued sorting through the boxes on her dining room table, eventually Johanna pulled out this one picture and just stared at it. It was a grainy black and white photo of a two-story house. This is the house where it happened. Okay. That's your house? Yes. This is the house that he was killed at. See this light pole? Yeah. Okay, his body was right behind the light pole. Johanna remembers vividly the night that Uncle Billy was murdered. September 27, 1972, almost 50 years ago. She was 13 years old at the time, but the whole thing is still crisp in her memory. As she recalls it, she was lying in bed. Uncle Billy was preparing to leave for the night shift. And all of a sudden, you heard bang, bang, bang. And we didn't know what it was. We were in bed. I was wide awake, I remember. And my mom ran to the front door. And I heard her yell, Billy, Billy. And my uncle was laying out in front. And my mom said to my aunt, Billy's hurt really bad. And my aunt went out there. And she took my uncle's head and she placed it on her, toward her lap. And my brothers ran to get blankets and came out and they covered my uncle. And you could just hear him moan. The aunt that Johanna mentions here, the one holding Uncle Billy in her lap as he lay dying, that's her Aunt Betty. She's no longer alive. But before she passed, Aunt Betty actually made recordings of herself in which she recounted all her memories of that fateful night. And these recordings, they were part of this massive collection of memorabilia that Aunt Betty had bequeathed to Johanna. Johanna had the audio cassettes laid out on the dining room table, front and center, just waiting to be played. She loaded one of them into a little tape recorder and hit play. Our story starts on September 27th. 1972, the night Billy was killed. Who's that speaking? That's my Aunt Betty. We listened together as Aunt Betty described holding Uncle Billy. Billy was on the lawn, her dad. I proceeded to the lawn. He was near his car on the parkway. I kept calling his name. He turned, looked at me. He raised his hand and the keys fell out of his hand. As I knelt down, he turned and he, his back was resting on my knees. And I kept saying, Billy, Billy, what happened? What happened? It was unclear how badly Uncle Billy was hurt, but there was blood everywhere. A family member rushed back inside and called the police. By then, many of the neighbors had also come outside, seen what happened, and they too were calling for help. Nobody responded. There was nobody almost for a half an hour. And by this time, people had gathered, neighbors, everybody was out. 
Uh, the policeman came. I told him my brother had type O blood. The nurse from across the street had come across. She felt his pulse. There was still a pulse. And as far as I was concerned, he was still alive. The squad car took Aunt Betty to the hospital. There, she met up with her other brother, Richard. Richard arrived, and Richard went right into the emergency room. A priest came, and he asked if we wanted the last rites, and I said yes. And then Richard came out a little while later and said, he's dead. They killed him. He's dead. After we listened to Aunt Betty's tapes, Johanna looked spent. She glanced wearily around her living room, and I began to appreciate how all this stuff, all this memorabilia, was in some ways a burden for her. The boxes gave heft and shape and immovability to these memories. Johanna had to physically navigate around them. As far as I could tell, her Aunt Betty had been kind of obsessed with Billy's death. And this obsession was fueled by Betty's complete bafflement as to why anyone would want to kill her brother in the first place. This couldn't have happened to us. It couldn't happen to our family. We didn't. We never bothered nobody. What What was this? What, what could have happened? Why Billy? Why Billy? What did he ever do? But it turns out Aunt Betty did have one clue, something somebody said to her on the night of the murder. Before I got in the squad car, somebody approached me and said to me, I saw it all. I saw it happen. Someone told her, I saw it all. In the chaos of the moment, Aunt Betty couldn't really focus on who had said this to her. She just remembered his voice, his words, but not his face or his name. And kind of amazingly, it was a long time, several years in fact, before Aunt Betty even learned who this man was or what exactly he'd seen. Turns out this man was a neighbor, just a regular guy. And he was destined to become the most important witness in the murder of Billy Logan. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping 
lower scores, and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. In order to fix this murder case for the mob, Bob needed to know who the victim was. But the real key was knowing who the witnesses were. That was going to be crucial because it would tell him just how weak or strong the prosecution's case was. And then he'd know how big an ask it would be when he approached a judge with a bribe. So Bob soon found out more about the witness. He worked at gas stations and also drove a milk truck. His name was Robert Lowe. The night of the murder, Robert Lowe had been out walking his dog, Ginger, when he noticed a car idling just down the street from the Logan's house. Then he heard a shout, followed by a loud bang. He saw Logan's body fall backwards. Moments later, someone got out of the idling car and shot Logan again. A streetlight illuminated the man's face for just a few seconds. Robert Lowe got a glimpse of the killer. Later that night, he gave a brief statement to the police. Sometime later, two detectives followed up and visited Robert at work. Then they had him come down to the station. We know what happens next because Robert recounted all of this to a journalist named Maurice Posley, who ended up writing a book about the murder. Down at the police station, the detectives hauled out four photo albums. They were collections of mugshots organized thematically. Each album had its own label, homicide rape, burglary, robbery, auto theft. Take your time and go through them, the detectives told Robert. See if you can ID the shooter. It seemed improbable, like looking for a needle in a haystack. Robert was halfway through the last binder when he saw him. Narrow face, aquiline nose, dark eyes. Got him, said Robert. You sure? asked one of the detectives. Yeah, I'm sure, said Robert. The detectives didn't tell Robert the name of the guy he just ID'd. They just told him he could go now. Turns out, the guy Robert pointed out, he was Harry Alamon, a reputed hitman for the mob. 
seems like this would be a tantalizing lead for the police. But remarkably, nothing happened with this investigation for several years. Then a second witness materialized, named Louis Almeida. Louis claimed to be a friend of Harry's, an accomplice to the murder, the guy who drove the getaway car. He was now in trouble with the law himself on a separate matter and was looking to talk. So he served up his old pal Harry on a silver platter, said, yep, he's the guy that killed Billy Logan. And then, boom, the prosecutors had what they needed. In December of 1976, a grand jury indicted Harry Alamon. It was big news. The Chicago Daily News reported that the mob had assassinated over 1,000 people since the 1920s, and this was one of the only times a hitman had ever been indicted. Robert Lowe, the neighbor, agreed to testify, as did the accomplice, the getaway driver. Aunt Betty said she'd testify too. She'd talk about her brother and the night that he'd been killed. But Betty's niece, Johanna, says her whole family was spooked. Everybody knew what the mob was capable of. And and for us, we were, we had plainclothesmen sitting in front of our house that were taking down license plate numbers of people that were coming to our house. They were trying to make sure who was who. We even had them following us to school to make sure we were okay. The police? The police, yeah. It sounds pretty scary. It was very scary, yeah. And the guy who supposedly killed her uncle, Harry Alamon, he seemed pretty scary too. In a bizarre twist, Harry was actually a distant relative of Billy, the victim. Billy had married Harry's second cousin, which didn't raise too many eyebrows in this case because, well, back then, in many Chicago neighborhoods, everyone seemed to be related somehow. In any case, Harry's story was now all over the papers. One headline heralded him as a modern-day Al Capone. In another article, a prosecutor warned that Aliman, quote, kills with the professional efficiency of an expert assassin. This was the guy the mob wanted Bob Cooley to save, the guy whose trial Bob was going to fix. It turns out there were many facets to the so-called expert assassin. And the people I talked to, people who knew Harry from back in the day, they all seemed to remember a different man. You ever watch the movie Scarface? Kind of reminds you of the guy who walks up behind Scarface with the shotgun at the end. He's like a bantam rooster. He's slender. He's got thick, wavy hair, sunglasses. A ladies' man, a good looker, dashing kind of character. And was also the kind of guy who could make the marinara sauce uh, on Sundays. He looks like somebody who, if you rubbed up against him, you sort of bleed because he's the razor's edge. But perhaps the most interesting take that I heard on Harry came from this next person. Okay, my name is Frankie Forliano. My father was Harry Alamon. And basically, he was involved. How do I say that part? This always gets me. Jake? Yeah? How do I say it? He was involved in the organized crime. Frankie's now in her 60s, and all her life she's been trying to explain who her father was. She actually wrote a memoir about her dad called 
they can't hurt him anymore. And as you can see, it's still not easy for her to explain who he was, especially because there are so many stories out there about him. When you read about your dad in the papers, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Sometimes they'll say, you know, uh, Harry Alamon, the, the hitman. And That's what they say. What was that like for you to, to hear people talk about your dad that way? That was horrible. It was scary. It was horrible. It was, you just can't even picture it. You're like, this is not true. My dad? Not my dad. No way. No way. Frankie says that she grew up thinking that her dad was just, well, a great dad. And by all accounts, he was a good father. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Harry had so many sides to him. For example, he was a painter. And I don't mean a house painter. I mean an artiste. He went to the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. But if you're thinking of some guy wearing a turtleneck and a beret, think again. Harry liked to wear suits. Now, he was on the shorter side, around five foot seven, but tough as nails. People said he had a wicked left hook that you never saw coming. Hence his nickname, Harry the Hook. He was a Mexican-Italian guy with a Spanish last name that literally meant German. As you'll hear, no one can even agree on how exactly to pronounce his last name. So, yeah, Harry was a riddle. The Chicago Crime Commission estimates Harry killed 18 people between 1971 and 1977 alone. But to Frankie Forleano, Harry was a savior. You see, Frankie's biological father died when she was very little. As a result, Frankie's mom, Ruth, was suddenly a widow with four young kids to feed, including Frankie. That's when Harry showed up. Now, you might think Harry would be scared off by the widow with the whole brood of kids. Nope. Harry began courting not just Ruth, the mom, but the whole family. It was almost like Harry wanted every one of them to fall in love with him. He spent time with the kids one-on-one, playing games, asking them questions, taking them shopping. Yeah, he definitely won us over. He knew what he was doing. He's really loved, loves kids. And he's got a lot of compassion and he's got patience. Oh my God, he has the best patience. When it came time to propose, Harry asked Frankie for her permission, even though she was like seven years old at the time. Uh, He just basically said, you know, how would you feel if I married mommy and we could all live together in the same house and I would be there all the time and we'd be a family and we'd eat together we could do all these fun things, and I, oh my God, I was so happy. Up until this moment, Frankie remembers Harry intended to move to New York and become a commercial artist. Now he shelved all that. Instead, he took a job distributing a horse racing newsletter known as a scratch sheet, and he took care of Frankie and her siblings, provided for them, doted on them. There were moments when Frankie got the sense that there was another side to her dad. It became clearer to her the older she got. Would-be boyfriends would ask her, is your dad going to come outside and blow my head off? His reputation couldn't have made dating easy. By the time that she was a teenager, Frankie did understand that her dad wasn't just selling scratch sheets at the racetrack. Harry admitted to her that he collected on something called juice loans. He said... You know, 
there's people in this world that need help. Some people might need it because family members sick, they need money for a hospital bill, they can't pay their rent, they can't afford to take care of their kids. There's people like that. And if they need something, you help them out and they pay you back a little bit more. And then there's people that want to take your money. And after they take your money, they don't want to pay you back. So there's those that will and there's those that don't. What did he say about those that don't? You, you, you get it. You got to collect the money. I didn't say anything about killing them. They beat them up or whatever. So, yeah, maybe dad had to knock people around occasionally. But these were people who had it coming. And on the whole, Frankie still believed he was a good guy. He was a family man. He didn't cabaret. He didn't go out drinking. Not a dancer. He was a family man. So I don't know where he came at the time to go out killing people. I just don't know that. I don't know this beast of a man that they describe, you know. This other side of her father, this beast of a man. Frankie didn't really hear about this until 1976, the year he was indicted. It was that year that Harry called the whole family together for a meeting to prepare them for what was to come. He sat us down at the table, my brothers, my sister, my mom, and he sat us down as a family. And he said, you're gonna hear a lot of bad things about me. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, they're coming after me for something I didn't do. We're like, who's coming after you? What's going on? Harry began to explain that he was about to be indicted for the murder of Billy Logan. And he told them what to expect at trial. They're going to say I'm part of organized crime and you're going to hear things about me that you will be scared or you will be afraid. And I want you to understand what's going on. And like, what do you mean, uh, outfit and murder? What are you talking about? You know, and then he explained the story of what they were actually going to come after him for. And he just said, it's for something I didn't do. And that wasn't all. Harry also told him that he would be hiring protection for them, guards. So we had bodyguards in the house. Like these big, big guys sit sitting in our kitchen, standing up over us. And I'm like, Dad, what is this? He said, don't be afraid. They're bodyguards. They're here to protect us. I said, what do we need protection from? He said, from the government. They are trying to frame me. This is a setup. That's how Harry explained it. The problem for Harry was there were two eyewitnesses, the accomplice who claimed he'd helped Harry do it, and Robert Lowe, who'd stumbled upon the murder while out walking his dog. In theory, their testimony would be heard in a courtroom and decided upon, fair and square. But the entire Logan family was nervous, and even a bit skeptical, that justice would be served. Johanna, the niece of the victim, remembers the whole family talking about this. And my grandpa had called my uncle and said, you know how this works in Chicago, so don't be surprised if he's found not guilty. You know how this works in Chicago, meaning someone might try to fix the case, someone like Bob Cooley. And in fact, in early 1977, as both sides prepared for this murder trial, Bob was making preparations of his own. Remember, before he agreed to fix this case... Bob wanted to review the facts. What struck him immediately was the lack of physical evidence tying Harry to the crime. 
But Bob also paid special attention to the two eyewitnesses. He wasn't overly impressed with either of them. Robert, the neighbor, had talked to the police a few times, and there'd been a few small inconsistencies in what he'd told them. And as for Louis, the getaway driver, well, he was serving a 10-year federal sentence and had struck a deal with prosecutors. So, arguably, he had his own agenda. As Bob saw it, there was plenty of room for reasonable doubt. Plenty for a judge to hang his hat on. The judge will hear the evidence and the judge will say not guilty, as any judge would. But did you have any doubt in your mind that Harry Alleman pulled the trigger? Oh, I know, I knew he did. I, I was certain he did. He had no doubt in his mind that Harry had done it. But the case was weak enough that he felt he could fix it, and he could tell a judge not to worry. And there was a final factor that Bob says weighed into his decision about whether or not to fix this case, and it involved the question of motive and what type of murder this was. There was no perfectly clear explanation as to why Harry would have murdered Billy Logan. The local papers were reporting that Billy was murdered because he stood up to the mob. If you remember, Billy was a teamster. Supposedly, the mob had asked him to cooperate in a robbery scheme, and Billy had said no. All of this, Bob says, led him to believe that this was a routine mob murder, which seems to have eased his conscience. And apparently, this was the final deciding factor, convincing him that, yes, he could and should fix this case. I thought it was just a mob killing, mob guys killing mob guys. And this went on all the time back there. In fact, I knew like 50 people that were, were hitmen in Chicago. I agreed to, to fix the case because I thought it was, again, it was just one mob guy killing another mob guy. What's the big deal? Because that's part of your code. Two mob guys killing each other doesn't bother you, but an innocent guy dying does. Yes, absolutely. It was just my, it was the way I live. I mean, it, this is my life when you say code. I mean, using that word like it's some kind of a magical thing. This was my nature. Bob says he would never, for example, represent a pedophile. He also prided himself as someone who stood up to bullies. But when it came to mob murders, he was inclined to look the other way. I didn't really get his logic here, to be honest. It seems so callous. But it did help me to get some more context. I spoke to a federal prosecutor who specialized in the mob back in the 70s in Chicago. And he told me, back then, it seemed like there was a mob killing almost every single week. These murders were just part of the rhythm of life in Chicago back then. Kind of like... Wake up, eat breakfast, go to work, catch the score on the Cubs game, read about who got whacked, go to sleep, repeat. You know, like a dark, mafioso version of Groundhog Day. And typically, no one was ever convicted. Witnesses either vanished or refused to cooperate. But there also seemed to be an implicit understanding that mob guys just killed each other. Always had, always would. And there was no point in refereeing any of it. Kind of crazy, perhaps, but this was a prevailing sentiment at the time. And when I forced myself to consider this mindset, I guess I began to understand how Bob could get so callous about it all. But even if you buy into the morality of this logic, the problem was there was no evidence that Billy Logan was a mobster. Sure, he worked for the Teamsters. And yes, the Teamsters were known to do business with the mob. But it was a big stretch to classify Billy Logan himself as a mobster. Apparently, however, it was a stretch that Bob was comfortable making. 
When justifying his actions, Bob could be quite agile. In fact, as I came to know him better, I began to see him as a kind of ethical acrobat who could bend over backwards and contort himself until his worldview made perfect sense. What struck me, above all else, was how important it was for Bob to see himself as a fundamentally good person. The Lord himself, uh, you know, knows what I've done and what I haven't done. And there's no question in my mind, he's protecting me. I should have been killed a half a dozen times. I, I did what I did. And the big guy upstairs knows what I did. I don't think he's going to put me in hell for it. I don't think so. Part of this certainty came from, of all things, a charm that he wore around his neck. I noticed it a few times when we chatted on Zoom. It was a scapular, a religious ornament, a little gold cross that his mother had given him. He never took it off. She told him it would keep him safe. That's what she said. But I don't push it. As I say, I don't push it by... That's why I've never murdered anybody. I've been tempted to a couple of times when people were going to kill me, but uh, that's the only reason I never did that. I'm curious, what else, like, in the line that you drawn of things you would never do, murdering someone, what else? I would never get involved in cases where I'm cheating people or stealing their business or destroying lives. I just wouldn't do it. Do you consider bribes you've placed, do you put that in the tally of sins you've committed when you look at your life on, on whole? To be very honest, uh, no. I mean, that's not a sin. That's not in the book written as a sin. It was, it's something that's wrong in the eyes of the law. No question about that. There's no question it's wrong. I've done things that the law says are illegal. But, you know, but that's, you know, that's man's law. A violation of man's law, not a sin against God. That's how Bob thought about it, how he rationalized placing a bribe, even a bribe in a murder case. A very big murder case. The real trick now, says Bob, was finding the right judge. Not an easy task. This would be a big trial, all over the headlines. And so it was crucial to find someone whose credentials were unimpeachable. Someone who no one would ever think of as being corrupt. But it wasn't just a matter of optics. Bob needed a judge who would come through for him. He couldn't risk having a judge that took the bribe and then changed his mind. Because in the end, Bob was responsible. Bob was the one on the hook. Pat Marcy, the mob's political czar, had made it very clear to Bob that he better come through for them. But if Bob pulled this off, he would be the man, the guy who could do anything. All of this meant right now, Bob needed to find the exact right judge. And he had the perfect person in mind. Next time on Deep Cover. I said, you know, yes, I said I would handle the case. And that's when he said, well, you realize if there's a problem, you're going to have a problem. Problem, I know what that means. It means you get an extra hole in your head. Cover is produced by Jacob Smith and Amy Gaines and edited by Karen Chikurji. 
Our senior editor is Jen Guerra. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra, and Fawn Williams is our engineer. Our art this season was drawn by Cheryl Cook and designed by Sean Carney. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Maya Koenig, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Mary Beth Smith, Brant Haynes, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Megan Larson, Royston Beserve, Lucy Sullivan, Edith Rousselot, Riley Sullivan, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. If you want to read more about this murder trial and the life of Robert Lowe, check out Everybody Pays by Maurice Posley and Rick Kogan. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the rest of the season right now, ads-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>